As we continue to worship this morning, I invite you all to stand and open your Bibles to Psalm 93. Psalm 93. We'll start in verse 1 and read all the way through to the end of the chapter. Please pay special attention to the reading of God's holy word. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their warring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, your name is majestic throughout all the earth. Lord, thank you that we all have an opportunity this morning to come and sit at your feet. I ask that you would help us to know more of who you are and help us to grow in our love and in our adoration. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> One challenge that we face as Christians is that we can be so easily distracted with ourselves, especially when it comes to worshiping God. We may come to corporate worship and be preoccupied with the busyness of our last week or the busyness of the upcoming week. We may come and sit in the pews and we might have on our minds the struggles and the trials that we're currently going through. Even while we're listening to a sermon, uh, we're, we're waiting for that application point of the sermon, the so what of the passage. The answer to the question, what does this passage have to do with me? Or, in other words, in, um, excuse me, what does this passage have to do with me? Or, uh, excuse me, I kind of lost myself. Um, yeah, or, or what does the Lord want me to do or not do this week? However, we can apply scripture in a different way. We don't always need to apply scripture in the means of what does the Lord want me to do or not do in regards to the physical needs. Uh, another way that we can apply scripture is simply asking the question or answering the question, what can we adore about our God in this passage? What can we adore about our God in this passage? In in what way can I give praise to the Lord in light of the truth that I've just learned? Psalm 93 is a perfect psalm to illustrate that point. This is what's called a theocentric passage. That is that this passage.
centered upon God and God alone. Now, you could argue that that is true of all of Scripture. All Scripture points to God. But what's unique about this passage is that man is completely removed from the equation. You'll notice that there is no petitions given by the psalmist. There are no laments, no commands, no warnings, no threats, no promises to live by. We have a passage that is completely focused on the Lord and on the Lord alone and who he is. It's almost as if the psalmist is taking you by the chin and is lifting your head up and is saying, quit staring at your navel, quit staring at yourself, and look upon the Lord your God. Look to his throne. I think that's a good attitude that we should bring every single time we come into worship. We should always come into worship with an attitude of taking our eyes off of ourselves and focusing them on the Lord. Psalms 93 through 100 have been nicknamed the royal psalms. That is that their theme is focused and centered upon celebrating our Lord as King. Last week, we talked about our call to worship, the Lord calling us to, to come to him, to come to Jesus' feet. That's the first element of our worship. The next step following that is coming to the Lord and adoring him for who he is. But makes the question, what can we adore about our king this morning? What can we adore about our king this morning? So in a way, I'm kind of throwing the application points up in front of you right away, and then we'll dive into each one of them individually. So what can we adore about our king? I'll tell you three kingly attributes that we see in Psalm 93. Three kingly attributes that we can adore for. His sovereignty, his strength, and his separateness. His sovereignty, his strength, and his separateness. So first, we can adore the Lord for his sovereignty. Let's look at verse 1 together. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. So right away we see this kingly imagery that's emphasized in his clothing. He is robed in majesty. He has put on or he has girded strength as his belt. Clothing, even in our time, is used as a symbol of our identity. It is an outward expression of how I want you to perceive me. So take, for example, as some of you know, I work as a nursing assistant in a nursing home, and our uniforms are scrubs and a name tag. So whenever I show up to work and I'm wearing my scrubs and my name tag, I'm telling everybody else there, I'm telling the, the patients, the visitors, my coworkers, I'm letting them all know, hey, uh, I work here. Um, if you need anything or if you have any questions, uh, you can come to me. Uh, I'll tell you that I don't know the answer, and then I'll just pawn you off to the nurse. <laughs> but it's not just uniforms that also show that. Uh, we also have shirts with logos on them, uh, with our favorite bands or places that we've visited. 
what we're doing, we're projecting to everybody else that this is what I find valuable, this is what's important to me, this is, in a sense, this is what my, uh, my identity is. Uh, disclaimer, I don't know who I stole that illustration from, but I thought it was really fitting here. Now, uh, a kingly robe is a little bit different. <coughs> a kingly robe is a symbol of authority. So when you are to walk into a throne room, you won't be able to state who's the one in charge. You just either need to look for the person who's sitting on the throne, or you need to look for the person in the room who's wearing the, the big robe, the, holding the scepter and wearing the crown. He is robed in majesty. This is metaphorical language that tells us that the beauty and the dignity of God is intrinsic in his very being. That means that majesty wasn't just merely bestowed on God. Majesty wasn't just given to God. Nor did God usurp this majesty from some former ruler. He has always been, and he always will be, the majestic one. He is from of old. He is from everlasting. That's to say that he is outside of time. He is not bound by time like you and I are. Continuing in verse 1, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. So who established the world? Well, God has established the world. God is the one who forged the foundations of the earth. God is the one who has sprinkled the heavens to shimmer above the earth. If you want to see a glimpse of God's glory, if you want to see a glimpse of his majesty, you just have to go outside. The heavens and the earth declare the work of his hands. The heavens and the earth declare his glory, his majesty. But God is not sovereign just merely because he looks the part. God is sovereign because he reigns. That means that he is actively participating in governing his creation. In verse 2, your throne is established from the whole. You are from everlasting. Here we have a, another kingly image, the image of a throne. Uh, a throne is where a king will declare his decrees to his people and to his nation. So I think it will be helpful to talk a little bit how a, how a monarchy works. So first and foremost, a monarch or a king was subject to nobody in their nation. I mean, they did have counselors, they did have advisors, but they didn't need to heed the advice of their advisors. They, um, whenever they spoke, everything that they spoke became law. There was no vetoing their laws. There was no bringing their laws before Congress or Parliament to be voted on. Kings ruled with absolute power. But even so, even with all of that power, an earthly king is still very limited. And I'll give you a couple of examples of how they're limited. First, uh, an earthly king is constrained to only govern their nation. So a king in Asia can't tell a king in Europe what to do, or vice versa. A king could be overthrown. They could be overthrown either by their people, or they could be overthrown by other nations. 
And on top of that, earthly kings are mortal. They are bound to die because they are bound to time and they are bound to flesh. They will one day die either of sickness, of old age, or die in battle. If you think about that, the highest form of power that anybody in this room could ever hope to achieve is still extremely limited. But that's not so with our God. Now, just like an earthly king, when God speaks, his word becomes law. However, God's law has much more authority in regards to its reach and its quality. Earthly kings are bound to only govern their country, and they rely on the obedience of their people in order to keep their authority. God is bound by nothing, and God is bound or relies on no one to maintain his authority. In Genesis 1, first chapter of the Bible, we see straight away how God governs his universe as king of the universe. We see over and over in Genesis 1, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. When God says, let there be light, light could no longer hide in non-existence. Light had to obey him and to come into being. When God commanded the mountains to rise, they had to rise. When he commanded the valleys to fall, they had to fall. His providential authority is irresistible. His providential authority is irresistible. And as a bit of a, a subnote, we'll talk a little bit about authority itself. Authority itself comes from God. When he created the sun and the moon, he gave them authority. He gave them permission to give light. Their light, their authority is borrowed from the Lord. And in the same way, our presidents and our governors borrow authority from God. You recall in the account of Jesus' crucifixion, when Jesus was standing before Pilate, uh, Pilate was grilling him with questions, and Jesus refused to answer. He kept silent before him. And so irritated, Pilate decided to threaten Jesus and said to him, don't you know that I have authority to set you free? Don't you know that I have authority to crucify you? In other words, who are you, Jesus, to deny speaking to me? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority unless my father had given it to you. So all authority, all laws, all moral laws, all natural laws, they're all given by the mouth of God, and they're sustained by God's hand. The hearts of kings are like water in the hands of our Lord. Now, how else does his sovereignty affect us? Well, in every single way that you can think of, God has created all things. He sustains all things. It was in eternity past that God foreordained the establishment of the earth and all of its inhabitants. It was in eternity past that he elected those for whom he would die. 
That is, his redemptive plan was set in stone before the earth was even made. It was there in eternity past that he ordained the events of your life, the whole course of your life. From the date of your conception, from what family you were born into, from your skin color, your gender, and even the date that you would die. All things in your life, even things that you would deem as good or bad, all of it has been ordained by the Lord according to his sovereign will, according to his good pleasure. And what comes with that, when talking about God's sovereignty, a question that comes up is how exactly does he do that? How does he ordain my life? Does that mean that we are all just bound to his will, bound to his sovereignty as robots? Well, no to that last question. We still have free agency. The Lord ordains all things, but he is not the author of sin. James 1.13 makes that very clear, that he is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. Now, I don't want us to fall down a theological or philosophical rabbit hole. Um, so I, I, I won't be talking in length about God's sovereign will versus man's free will. That is a very important topic, and life can always point you to really good resources and wise theologians who have answered that question. But I don't think it'd be very conducive or constructive to talk about this morning. So with a little bit of trust, let's accept that God controls all things, and the implications of that, whatever that might be, the implications of that are harmonized within his holy mind. In other words, God knows exactly what he's doing. His sovereignty shouldn't give us anxiety. His sovereignty shouldn't give us confusion. On the contrary, God's sovereignty should give us confidence. His sovereignty should fill us with assurance and strengthen our faith. Because when we think of him as sovereign and in control of all things, and when he tells us his redemptive plan, we can trust that it must come to pass because God is the one who decreed it. And if he promises that his law cannot pass away, that should strengthen our faith. So adore your Lord for his sovereignty. Take comfort and confidence and have confidence in his sovereignty. The second attribute, the second kingly attribute we can adore him for this morning is his strength. And adore our Lord for his strength. Verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. So again, we see this repetition, just as we saw with the repeated idea of clothing. The floods have lifted up, the floods have lifted up. Whenever an author of poetry or narration is using repetition, what they're trying to do is add literary energy to their writing. They're trying to add literary energy and emphasis to their writing. So in a way, with repetition, what they're trying to do is push you up the 
the hill of their story so you can get to the climax and look out on the horizon and see the full purpose of what they're trying to show you. So the psalmist here is pushing you up the climax of his poem. He starts with saying that the floods have lifted up, but what exactly are the floods? I don't believe that he's referring to the global flood in Noah's time. I don't think there's much surrounding or internal evidence for that. Some commentators suggest that the floods are referring to the rebellious nations that are around Israel at this time. Uh, these rebellious nations who are raising their voices against God. They say that the, the floods might be a picture of the entire collective world coming together in a pathetic attempt to try and drown out the throne of God. Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2, and 14 and 15. I'll say that again for you guys who are taking notes. Uh, Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2, verses 14 and 15, even refer to the nations as lifting up their voice. Uh, these rebel nations are also described as floodwaters who are being raised against God's people to destroy them. Now, I don't dismiss that second option entirely. I think there's some merit to that. But I think we have a simpler explanation as to what the floods are. And we don't even have to leave our psalm to be able to see it. The floods seem to be an instrument to display the strength and the power of our God. The floods seem to be an instrument to display the strength and the power of our God. Verse 4. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. So again, we see that threefold repetition. For every time that the floodwaters have raised up, we see that the Lord is declared mightier, mightier, mightier. No matter how high those waters will try to reach, the end of verse 4 tells us that the Lord is higher than they could ever wish to rise. Turn with me now to Mark chapter 4. Starting in verse 35, and as you turn there, I'll give you a bit of context. Mark chapter 4. This is the story of when Jesus calmed the storm. Keep in mind, this is about a year or two in Jesus' ministry. At this point, he had already performed many miracles, exorcisms, various healings, etc. And in his preaching, he has made his deity very clear to his disciples. So Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the boat, just, just as he was, the other boats were with him. And a great wind storm arose, 
and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the storms in the Sea of Galilee both were and are very violent and very frequent. Uh, they're rather unpredictable. And a lot of that has to do with the geography of where the sea sits. So the sea sits in this bowl of mountains, and an easterly wind will usually come over the mountains and wreak havoc on the waters, where even the, the skilled sailors won't even see the, the storm coming. And many sailors, even today, still die in the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus and his disciples, they were caught in one of the middle of these storms. We see that water is pouring over the sides as the boat teeter-totters back and forth, and Jesus is fast asleep. He is exhausted from a long day's work of ministry. In the meantime, everybody else is panicking, and they shake Jesus awake and say, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're about to die? Is that not a common sentiment that we have in our hearts when we're experiencing anxiety, when we feel like we're perishing or chaos is ensuing all around us? We cry out to God that we feel like, God, don't you care about my suffering? Don't you care? Are you not listening? So Jesus gets up and with only his word, just as he has always governed the universe, with only his word, he rebukes the wind and says, peace, be still. Everything went calm instantly. And he turns his rebuke to the disciples and says to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you not know that I am the one who made the winds and the waves? Do you not know that I am the Holy One, the Holy Son of God? Those waters outside of this boat couldn't kill me, even if they wanted to. You had no just reason to be afraid, because I, God incarnate, the Son of God, the King of the universe, was in the boat with you. And in verse 41, they were filled with a great fear. So in bewilderment and terror, they looked to one another and asked, who is this man? Who is this man that even the storms of the earth have to bow down to him? Turn with me back to Psalm 93. Who is this man? Well, this man is the Lord, their God. He's the one that 
they need to truly fear. So you've, you've seen footage of hurricanes, right? And like the, the floods that come with them. We see that floods are very destructive and they're just these unstoppable forces of nature. If you're ever down caught in one of these hurricanes and you see the floodwaters rising, the only thing that you could really hope to do is run to higher ground and hope that the waters will recede. Um, as Liv knows, I've been obsessively watching these past few months, these tornado videos on YouTube. Don't, don't ask me why, they're just really cool. Um, I'm, I'm just fascinated by these forces of nature, just something as seemingly harmless as wind, something that on a hot summer day like today, like a gentle breeze, a soft breeze can be very refreshing. It can so quickly turn into this whirlwind of destruction that can lift up mansions off from their foundations and level entire towns. Now, these forces of nature, uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, these things should scare us. We, uh, the disciples had a very <coughs> unique situation in that they had God incarnate with them. Uh, we do not. So when we hear the sirens go off, we should run to our basements and run to safety. So that's an application point to the Midwestern dads. Don't try and get a, a cheeky glimpse of the tornado. We should be afraid of these storms. But if you fear the storm, you need to multiply that fear towards the God who controls those storms. He is the one who is mightier than these storms. It's a true statement earlier in verse 1 that there is strength in his belt. But, beloved, don't only feel fear. Don't only feel fear, but take comfort in this truth. Take comfort knowing that the Lord on high is mighty. The strength of the king in ancient days brought encouragement and security to the hearts of their people when they would see that their king was healthy and strong. Their people would be greatly encouraged and comforted by that. You see, because not all kings were like the king in Robin Hood. Not all ancient kings were greedy. Not all ancient kings were power-hungry, vile monsters. Not all kings were tyrants. Some kings were benevolent. Some kings even loved their people. Some kings, as scripture tells us, even did right in the sight of the Lord. When a battle would occur between two nations, there was a, a practice where the kings would come to the front lines with their, uh, with their men, and they would be armed and ready to fight with them. And when the soldiers were there and looking at the enemy, they would glance over their shoulder and they would see that their king was standing right with them. And they would be filled with strength and vigor. And they would charge headstrong into enemy lines, 
filled with confidence because they knew that their king was fighting with them. So have confidence in his sovereignty. Take comfort in his strength. Finally, the last kingly attribute that we can adore him for, we can adore our Lord for his separateness. We can adore our Lord for his separateness. Verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Now, why choose separateness as the final attribute to talk about? Well, first, I needed a word that started with the letter S so I could keep the flow going. But truly, I do think that the word separate helps us at least in part define what holiness is. For something to be holy means that it is set apart for a special use. The root word literally means to cut. So for those of you who like to cook, when you cut your vegetables, you set the pieces aside, cut, set aside, cut, set aside. Now, when you think of holy, what other, what other things come to your mind when you think of holiness? Do you think of someone or something without corruption or someone or something without evil intent? Do you think of something without blemish? When you think of holiness, do you think of moral purity? Or do you think of goodness? Holiness is those things. But the aspect that I want us to look at this morning is how holiness describes God's separateness, his differentness. Holiness describes his differentness. Now, if you want a book that's uh, entirely focused on God's holiness, uh, uh, there's a book by J.C. Ryle called Holiness. I'm sure Corey would really appreciate that. So uh, it is a, it's a wonderful, wonderful resource I recommend to you. Um, now, it feels almost a little anticlimactic to say that, well, God is, God is different. You know, especially in light of saying how God is sovereign, God is strong, and now God is different, he's, he's separate. But the point I'm trying to make is that God is not like our idols that we make for ourselves. God is not like you. God is not like me. God doesn't think like you. God doesn't think like me. His thoughts and his ways transcend our thoughts and our ways. Now, when I say that God is separate, I don't mean that he is so separate from his creation that he is not involved with or concerned about us. No, that is a wrong way to think of God. God did not just wind the clock of creation and then send us off on our merry way. When scripture says that he reigns, that means he is actively participating in governing his creation. Additionally, we don't want to go the other direction and say that God is creation itself. God is not the pew that you're sitting in. God is not the trees that are outside, nor is God you yourself. Notice I didn't say that he's not in you. 
If you have put your faith and your trust in Christ and you've repented of your sins, then the Holy Spirit does indwell in you. But the distinction you have to make is God is not you and you are not God. Psalm 113, verse 5, asks probably one of my favorite rhetorical questions in Scripture. Psalm 113, verse 5, Who is like the Lord our God? Who is like the Lord our God? What God can be likened to our God? There's a ridiculous saying that all religions are the same, and that lumps in Christianity with them. But what God has ever created everything out of nothing and sustains it? What God has predestined a people unto himself? What God has ever laid down his crown of gold and emerald in exchange for a crown of thorns? What God has dared to die for his enemies while they still hated him? What God has ever risen from the dead and reigns as king over the universe? You will not find this God outside of scripture because there is no one like our God. Holiness befits your house, O Lord. Holiness befits your house. It's the last time that we see the repeated idea of clothing. Befit can be translated uh, suits. Um, so like when you go to a wedding and you see the groom, you tell them that tux really suits you. It's appropriate, it's fitting, rather dashing. His holiness befits your house. His house represents uh, his dwelling place. Just like your home, his house is a place of security, of rest and refuge. His dwelling place is separate from the world of sin. And it's a place that we can take refuge and that we can find safety. It's something that we only have a taste of on this side of heaven. Now, remember how I said that clothing is an outward expression of an inward identity? We could say that what makes up the house of the Lord's identity is holiness. Or if I could borrow some of the language from verse 1, that his house is robed in holiness, is clothed in holiness. That is, separateness and goodness mark his house. And his church is being built into that house and being firmly established on Christ. So just as the world is created and built and firmly established, so are we as his church being built onto the foundation of Christ. And just as the world will never be moved, neither will we be moved from our foundation. We can trust that this decree is not just trustworthy, but very trustworthy. And why is that? Why is it very trustworthy? 
Well, because he is holy. One of the other definitions that I mentioned of holiness is you could define it as moral purity, right? God will never sin against you. He will never lie to you. Those first two attributes that we talked about with sovereignty and strength, those would be terrifying in the hands of a tyrant. But God is no tyrant. God is not corrupted by ultimate power like we are. He is altogether good. He is altogether holy. So when we think of his holiness, it should be a refreshment to our souls because we know that he controls all things for the good of those who love him. So we see the, the goodness of God and his holiness. But what specifically is that good? What is that good? A verse that might be familiar to some of you, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And we like that verse. We love that verse. But when the floods start to rise in our life, when the storms start to rage on and the winds are raging on, what exactly does that goodness mean? What exactly does that goodness look like, especially if it is the Lord who is orchestrating these storms? Does it look like reprieve from agony, enduring a, a long season of agony? Does this goodness look like stability and security of our possessions? Does his goodness look like repaired relationships that have long been scarred. Well, those are good things. Those are very good things. And when the Lord gives us those blessings, we praise him for it. We give him the glory for it. But the goodness that God has in mind is much richer than those things, much deeper than those things. So when you think of Romans 8, 28, <clears throat> Keep verse 29 in mind as well. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goodness that God offers you. To be conformed to the image of Christ. To be made more like him every single day. That's better than any good answered prayer that you ever offer up to the Lord. To be made holy as he is holy. To be conformed to his goodness. Not our version of goodness, but to his goodness. And to be separate from sin as he himself is separate from sin. I want to close us by taking a closer look at the throne of Jesus. So if you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And I want to let you know that you'll see as, as I read that there is a lot of 
symbolism. There's a lot of images here that you might look at and think are rather strange, as is true of much of the book of Revelation. But while I read, I don't want you to get bogged down by the weeds of details that we find in here. I simply want you to step back and see what's offered at face value as we look at the throne of Christ. Because the entire book of Revelation is a precious book, and it's here for your blessing, and it's here for your edification. So Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were, there was, as it were, a sea like a glass, like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. First living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Four living creatures, each of them with six wings full of eyes, all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Is your trust in the Lord and shaken? Do you see floodwaters rising around you and struggling to keep your head above water as it just seems like life is falling into chaos? Beloved, take a moment, take several moments to lift your eyes off of yourself and fix them on the throne of Jesus. Don't dismiss your problems as unimportant. Don't ignore them. Deal with them in due time. But let your Christian life be marked with a frequent lifting of your eyes to his throne. For the Lord reigns in sovereignty. All things are under his divine control. 
He reigns in strength. He is mightier than many roaring waters. And he is separate. He is holy. There is no one who is like our God. And he is worthy of all of your trust. His decrees will not and cannot fail. The word of the Lord in his throne will endure forever. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, how wonderful is your name. Lord, you are our mighty king who will never fail or save his people. I ask God that you would help us and to humble us who may doubt your power. Increase in us our faith and assurance so we may become more and more like your son every single day. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.